Previously on the Enneagram Journey. Let's start first of all with the reality that stances are determined by which of the three centers of intelligence is repressed, thinking, feeling, or doing. And for ones, twos, and sixes, thinking is repressed. For threes, sevens, and eights, feeling is repressed. And for fours, fives, and nines, doing is repressed. And let me just, let's just get this out of the way because this will save you future mail. I know that you don't like that and that you're probably not going to agree with it. So I'm going to give you an extra little piece so you can. Wanted to make a new life for myself. I'm sorry I was born with this perfect bone structure, that my hair looks better done up with gel and mousse than hidden under a stupid hat with a light on it. All I ever wanted to do was make you proud of me, Pop. With what, you male modeling? You're dead to me, boy. You're more dead to me than your dead mother. I just thank the Lord she didn't live to see her son as a mermaid. Merman. <coughs> Merman. So I experience so much feeling all the time. Like it's how I take in information. It's just my way of being, you know. And for my mom, I think she's the opposite. Like she doesn't really feel her feelings other than anger, I think. And so for me, as a kid, it was confusing to know how to feel um, and for that to be okay. And I think intuitively, I just kind of turned inward to experience those feelings within myself instead of kind of expressing those outwardly. You are now listening to the Enneagram Journey podcast with the Enneagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and I'll be along for the show. Earlier in the year, Suzanne traveled to Tennessee to teach an Enneagram Stances workshop, and she didn't have enough time to answer everyone's questions, so we saved a handful to answer on the podcast, and that is this episode. Opening up about resentment and the dependent stance, how can we help those repressed doers do, and Joey Shui from Enneagram Parents calls in, or we call her, and uh, hops on the phone to help us to answer a question about parenting a one. Before we get to the questions and the show, it's out in the world. The journey towards wholeness, Enneagram wisdom for stress, balance, and transformation. Suzanne's newest book is available. You can find it at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IvyPress.com, wherever you get your books. And we of course have plenty available at LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com. Get your copy, hop on Goodreads or Amazon, or get crazy and do both, and leave a review. That'll help out uh, Suzanne. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on her new book, The Journey Toward Wholeness. While you're online, go ahead and hop on over to lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash tour22 and sign up for the Enneagram Journey Toward Wholeness Teaching and Podcast Tour. Registration for the first three stops is up. It's going to be Richmond, Virginia in January, Birmingham, Alabama in February, and Houston, Texas in March. It's going to be a live podcast with lots of fun on Friday night. And then Suzanne's going to be teaching on Saturday. So hop on it today. Get in on the early bird registration cost. And it'll be great to see you on the tour. And uh, join us on the journey. Hey, everybody. 
Dances is my favorite, so I'm looking forward to this. All right, so the first question is about resentment. So person asked a question. They said that they combined a few things. One, talking about uh, one part was from your new book, and I think it was about ones in resentment. Uh, somebody else asked a question about twos in resentment. And then this person who submitted the question says that they're six, and they felt like they struggled with resentment. So the first thing is, is that a stance? Is resentment possibly a dependent stance issue? And then answer that, and I'll ask the follow-up question. Yes, it, it is possibly a dependent stance issue, but that doesn't mean that other numbers don't have resentment. So let me separate those three numbers and how resentment occurs. Um, first, I'll do ones. Resentment usually doesn't show up in ones in, in any kind of way that they act on until someone that they're in relationship with gives away what they want. So an example of that would be when you hear a one saying in a relationship, you work too many hours, you spend too much time working at home, you are too busy, you didn't even notice that it was the first anniversary of my new job, Uh, those kinds of things. That all means that from the one perspective, you didn't notice what they needed and therefore didn't meet their need. And ones think it's inappropriate to have to ask for what they want. So that leaves them in a position of not having asked, expecting you to do something and then you didn't come through because you're not in the dependent stance. Because ones, twos, and sixes are present to the moment as opposed to the past or the future. And in that reality, they kind of observe what's happening right now. And they're more likely to anticipate your needs than other numbers are. Is orientation to time possibly the biggest part of this? It is. Because they're processing the feelings in the moment. And that seems like this plus this equals resentment. That's exactly right. And the other thing is, darn, I don't like to answer this. It's because we're thinking repressed. And so it's just a feeling doing thing. There's no thinking about, did you intentionally slight me as a one? Do you not care about me as a one? It's like all of that where if you brought up thinking, you would know that that's not what's happening most of the time. For twos, resentment uh, is similar to that, but not exactly the same. For twos, resentment uh, occurs when they feel taken for granted. And it happens, man, almost every time. I really have to work at it because I feel taken for granted a lot. And one of the reasons I feel taken for granted is because I don't ask for what I need as a two, and I would have to do the work to know what I need, but that's on me. I expect other people to know my feelings because I know the feelings of other people. And so that seems like you ought to know mine. And the third thing is we do things that are not ours to do. And then we resent not being noticed, known, thanked, appreciated. So twos end up settling 
for appreciation, but what they really want is love. If they don't feel like they got either one, then what you get in return is resentment. For sixes, sixes try to protect themselves in relationships by keeping score. And I don't mean that to sound as harsh as it sounds, and yet I don't know another way to define it in a way that you can kind of walk away with something without having to think about paragraphs and paragraphs. So now I'll give you the paragraphs. When sixes are hurt, they doubt themselves. Because they doubt themselves, they doubt you. Sixes also self-question a lot about, am, am I really in this for the long haul? Do I really want to be here? Is this where I should be? Is this the relationship I should be in? And we ascribe to the world the way we are, so they think other people have all that going on in their heads too. So when you hurt a six, the way they protect themselves from you hurting them again is to keep tabs on that. I know a six who calendars any time she and her partner are not doing well. And um, I know another six who journals and has a different color pen for journaling things where they feel slighted, which I told them, if you just want to flip through and see your resentment, then it's in this particular color of ink in your journal. And those entries in that journal don't protect her from being hurt again for all three numbers, to Joel's point. If you can't bring up thinking and your orientation is, I want to feel different right now, and other people don't pick up on that, then that is all expectation, and every expectation leads to resentment. So I feel like the answer was kind of yes. Yes. And, but you did great. You, you can't say yes. That's we've talked about this. Yeah, you don't let me say yes. Yeah. For for people that have been to a workshop, uh, small or large, <laughs> a couple times over the years, so we'll ask a question, and, or and maybe it was someone who was there who has just poured out their heart and asked the question, and Suzanne goes no. <laughs> I'm like, hey, they they paid money to be here. They need more than no. So thank you. You nailed that. Um, <laughs> And now the follow-up question is, so since that answer is yes, resentment for one, two, and six is for the other two stances, is there something similar, comparable that they kind of have? I think so. Uh, I think for the withdrawing stance, which is fours, fives, and nines, resentment is the byproduct of perceived betrayal or real betrayal. But they don't act on it outwardly and this is kind of bad language I don't know that we have better language than this but you know that whole idea of you're dead to me like I know only because I, I wish this is why we're not prepared like the ticket is prepared yeah <laughs> uh, there's a movie a fantastic movie called Zoolander okay and um, I forget the actor's name huge huge big actor but he looks over it that is funny. He goes, boy, you're more dead to me than your dead mother. <laughs> That's bad. So, yes, I do know that term. <laughs> okay. Well, it's that idea of uh, I'll still see you in in social settings or I'll still see you at work and I uh, will be polite and we're done. And that has to do with 
orientation of time, right? So if you think about the fact that your orientation of time is the past, then it's like every time you see that person, the thing that comes up for you is that betrayal. And, you know, betrayal is particularly uh, hard, I think, for fours, fives, and nines because it involves so much emotional energy. So much. I don't like to jump around to, from one question to another yep. question and then come back. Yep. But the next question that I've got just potted up right here, ready to go. Okay. So remember where we're at? We were talking about withdrawing stance, fours, fives, and nines. Mm-hmm. We have none aggressive yet. Right. But the question is, what advice do you have for a four whose past hurts have felt so heavy that it feels that new relationships are no longer valuable because it's too vulnerable a place to stay in? Okay, I can talk this advice for this four or any four that feels that way, but it's really hard. So I want you to know that I don't think it's as easy as it's going to sound when I say it. One of the things that I advise fours to do is get a practice and work on forgiveness. Lots and lots of forgiveness because if you can't forgive the past, you can't live into the future. And that's a perfect example of why. It's like, I'm, I don't ever want to hurt that much again, so I'm not going to invest again. I'm going to take care of myself, and that's never going to work for you. And, and one of the things that will help you in current and future relationships to not feel like you're excruciatingly vulnerable, vulnerable, yes, but not so much that you can't breathe, is for you to not go so deep so fast. There's a tendency in you as a four, in all fours, to want to get to a, a moderately deep level really quick. And a lot of other numbers can't go there with you. And some numbers will struggle to ever go there with you on any kind of regular basis. So you got you to gotta do what's in your house to do. You got to do your own work, forgiveness. You have to forgive the past. I would encourage you to read Thich Nhat Hanh, somebody whose name I can't think of, but I will, maybe. Well, you're thinking, you've talked about... Jack Cornfield. Jack Cornfield. If, if Buddhists get forgiveness in a way that is uh, holistic, it includes the way Christians understand forgiveness I believe in the way the Jewish community understands forgiveness. But there's a, a self-responsibility, a, a responsibility that you take because you want to feel better that is, I find, more accessible sometimes in reading Buddhist teachers. And so you might try that. Now to add another branch, I know we're getting further away from talking about the initial question. As long as I don't have to remember the initial question, I'm go, I'll am i go anywhere you want to. I've got it written down with my new cool whiteboard here. Okay, great. Uh, you're talking about fours, and if you can't forgive the past, you can't live into the future. Do you think that when people ask questions, whether they're four or seven, or they can't figure out the difference between four and seven, I know you're teaching about fours and sevens as children is they're hard to tell the difference between. But when you said that about fours, I know I immediately went and looked at my own story and like the first big breakup I had 
where I was like, I'm never dating again. That, that was stupid. Like, why would I ever want to feel like this ever again? And meant it. You know, it's like, it's like I'm saying I'm swearing off meat or something. Like, I'm yeah. telling you, we were sitting at the table together at our old house. We both had a cup of coffee, and you looked at me and said, I'm done. Yeah. I tried the, no, you're not. You'll get over this. Nope. Done. I I had that, uh, I, I did it for a while. You know, it wasn't a weekend thing. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Do you think, though, that that is that similarity between sevens and fours? That it's not that the emotions, it seems to me my understanding for fours, is that the emotions are extreme both ways. Absolutely. And for sevens, they're extreme both ways. Absolutely. And it's just one maybe possibly embraces the full spectrum of the extremes. Whereas one tries the seven embraces half the expect the spectrum and then tries to ignore the other half right. and can't move on to the future. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. Because for sevens, it takes a lot of energy to hold at bay what you don't want to feel. It's not like you just get to not feel it. There's a lot of stuff going on in the background for you to hold that at bay mm-hmm. and not feel it. And, and so it, it also both, both, Numbers are always trying to fill their cup with completely different things, but always trying to fill the cup. So it's the children who, if you take them to Six Flags, then to Chuck E. Cheese to eat, and then somewhere else, neither number wants to go home. It's like, can't we have more? Mm -hmm. All right, so now we're back to the withdrawing stance. You want me to add on to fours, fives, and nines? If, it, if, you feel if like I have anything else to say. I don't know that I have anything else to say except that. Um, forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. It's about grace. It's not about an eraser. You don't erase people hurting you. You recognize that you've hurt other people too. And you offer the same kind of grace that you want and you move on, but you don't sign up for more of it from that relationship. You have to sign up for more vulnerability and a commitment to more grace for yourself and for other people moving forward because you'll, none of those numbers will ever be happy if they don't. They all want to be in relationship. It's been interesting over the years to watch Joe Giuseppe dad the reverend the reverend um he's got an awful lot of grace for a lot of people and the difference is that he doesn't he doesn't verbally process so he doesn't talk about things that hurt him he doesn't um do something as a nine and he kind of has a blinder on it's it's like there's a I just don't see it anymore. I don't I don't I'm I'm all neutral from now on. I'm just all neutral. So that's important to know because you know that they avoid conflict. Aggressive stance. There's a lot there's a lot there. Um think about what you know about threes, sevens, and eights. And think about the reality that they are thinking and doing or doing and thinking 
dominant and feeling is repressed. So if they choose to be vulnerable in a relationship, other people have to choose to honor it because anything else feels like betrayal and betrayal leads to resentment big time. And even if a seven reframes the event or the exchange for it not to be quite as bad as it was, that doesn't do anything about the resentment. Eights are done. You don't, you just don't get another chance. And resentment is not something they would name resentment, but what they carry is, um, that's not a safe place for me. And so I don't want to go there. And threes, very seldom share personal information anyway, and they very seldom enter into non-work-related relationships where there's, um, there just aren't many non-work-related relationships, and they test the water very carefully before they get in. One thing I have learned over the years from partners of threes, husbands and wives and adult children of threes, is threes don't seem to know they're being betrayed for a while. And therefore, they, they don't recognize their resentment. You know, the, it's a group. I think it's an actual recovery group. Adult yeah. children of uh, alcoholics. Yes, it is. It could have one of those for every Enneagram number, probably. Adult yes. children of Enneagram one parents yes. through nine. Absolutely. Because we, everywhere we go, people are like, you know, my my mother was absolutely this, uh-huh. and here's how it affected me. My father was yep. a seven who, you know, this is how it affected me. And isn't it interesting that um, there's so much talk about that and I think it's because there's an expectation that a parent-child relationship supersedes Enneagram difference, and it doesn't. It just doesn't. I, you know, if I'm the best mother I know how to be as a two, then I'm, I'm still a two, and I have two aggressive children. I think I've seen two books. One is maybe insanely popular or big, Love Conquers All. And then I've seen a more recent book that was the opposite of that. <laughs> Love is not enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's just um, we have to leave room for the difference. And, um, you know, I, I think Joey and Billy in Enneagram Parenting are doing a good job talking about that for people who want to look at parent number, child number differences. Let's stick with the aggressive stance. Okay. As a three, I desire people's approval and compliments. When I finally get the compliments, I can't stomach them. I get what I want, but I can't sit and take it. Is that because I'm feeling repressed? No, I don't think so. I think it's because you haven't done the work to distinguish the difference between compliments being perceived by you as compliments for what you do and you haven't ex- been able to accept compliments that are for who you are. I don't think I said that very well. 
You can try again. Okay, because I think it's real important. I think um, anytime a three receives a compliment, they believe the compliment is about how they performed, not about who they are as a person. And so once you internally and in your thinking switch that every time, then you know what went wrong with the performance. You can't accept the compliment that was personal. And often I try to compliment the threes in our life about who they are and they immediately associate it with something they do and say, well, I could have done that better. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you. It's hard. What tips do you have? Oh, I want to say one more thing about that. So three, that's your work. You have to learn to separate that out. Not the rest of us aren't going to be able to do that for you. So you're going to have to do that. Okay. Uh, What tips do you have for a five to trust and be present to their feelings and not just have thoughts about them? Read it again. What tips do you have for an Enneagram five to trust and be present to their feelings and not just have thoughts about them? I guess if I can't answer with yes or no, I can't answer with practice either. Correct. Correct. One word answers don't. Not going to get it. Yeah. It's, I feel like, I don't know about teachers out in Floyd data, (laughs) but that was a thing when I went to school. Yeah. Was you can't answer with, you know. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, Okay. Let's talk about it this way. I think it's possible for you to learn to convert thoughts back into feelings real time. So what you do is you, con- you immediately take something that is received emotionally or as a feeling or in your heart and move it to your head. And what you want to do is be able to as quickly move it back down to the feelings or back over to feelings. So you have to discipline yourself to allow for movement both ways when a feeling is appropriate and called for and you felt it for just a second and then you moved it all up to your head and responded with thinking. And times for you to observe yourself, do that is you do it when you're vulnerable or when you need something. So most people know that Carolyn's been my best friend since I was 18 and that she's older than me. And um, she's been having a really hard time with her hip and uh, her knees and she's vulnerable. And it's easier for her to hang into the emotional connection of our 50-plus year relationship when she's vulnerable than when all things are running smoothly, and she can just keep moving everything to her head. So you did great. Yeah. yeah. Practice. <laughs> All right, I've got a long question, and I know that th- that is something that I struggle at, is reading the long question, so I'm going to do my best. Okay. And tell me to reread it if needed. Okay. So you mentioned subtype shifts. I've always, uh, at the workshop, not in the past 25 minutes, you mentioned subtype shifts. I've always considered myself a two uh, with a strong sexual subtype, social, and a little self-preserving. In COVID, coming out of COVID, I've noticed a strong self-preserving as my subtype. 
I've been struggling to process this shift in my type in a time where what I needed most was to, to myself, focus on my own needs, but that hurt friendships. I was at a place where I couldn't give anymore. I needed to take care of myself and the people friendships that I thought were healthy. I realized we're so dependent on my giving when I stopped, it felt violating and like betrayal. How can I care for myself as a two without hurting those around me, especially when I already hold so much shame and guilt about self-care? And then looks like an added note. Too often I find that the people that are drawn to me are those who are willing to take my giving till I can't anymore, even when I try to set the boundary. Yeah, me too. Me too. So we're at the Mike Center. Joe dropped me off. The Reverend dropped me off here on his way to the church today. And on the way here, I looked at him and I named four people who we love. And I said, they all want more and I don't have it to give. A lot of people are coming out of COVID with a new subtype, a new dominant subtype, and it's self-preserving. And we're not very good at self-preserving when it becomes dominant. It's like it rules us for a while. And so you have to live into it first. And then you have all the work to do that is the reason you weren't self-preserving before. And you mentioned that. You said, you know, I'm not good at self-care and... I mean, I have all these things that I need to do. And I don't know how old you are, and I don't know how that is affecting your life. But the older you get, the fewer people you will be able to carry in your boat without the boat sinking. And so you have to do some good discernment about what relationships are the most important to you how much time you have and want to give to those relationships. And then you have to do good discernment around of your other relationships, which ones matter the most to you, and how much time do you have to give to those relationships. And then using language that is common in the relationship in talking with people who you care about but can't give as much to as you used to. You have to teach them that as a result of COVID, you see the world a little differently and you see yourself a little differently. And as a result of that, you need to change the parameters around your friendship or your relationship. And you want to try to do that well. And you hope that they want to be in um, a relationship that can accommodate change. And then it's not all on you to continue the relationship and make things work. The other people or the other person has a contribution to make to that too. And, you know, some people may want all that you're giving now, and if you're not going to give that much, they might not want to stay in the relationship with you or they may be hurt or they may be angry, and that's not on you. That's their work to do. And it's hard. And we're not in control of uh, subtypes. Like you you can't um, just buck up and go back to being predominantly sexual and social. And on the other hand, for those of us who were never self-preserving much, which is me, 
um, you're not very good at it. It kind of comes out sideways when you try to be self-preserving. So admit that too and admit that to the people you're in relationship with. Twos in repressed thinking. Okay. So this person at the workshop, as a two, repressed thinking, I felt like my childhood message was nobody cares what I think. Do I still carry this around as a 50-year-old woman? Mm, That's hard for me to answer for you. Maybe you still carry that around. Maybe you have been hurt when you've shared what you think about something or you um, inadvertently damaged a relationship when you shared what you think about something and you're connecting that. I would suggest that bringing up thinking is an everyday, every hour, lifetime journey. And the same is true for the other stances having to bring up their repressed center. And if you're 50, or since you're 50, I'm not questioning whether or not you're 50. (laughs) Since you're 50, um, it would be good for you to look back at a lot of really good productive thinking you've done and how that made the world better or the day better or your family better or your job better because it's there. People do care. Not everybody cares. Not, like, not everybody cares what you think. And um, that's okay. Because if you watch yourself, you don't care what everybody else thinks either. But you have people that you want to know their thoughts. And I guarantee you, there are people in your life who want to know yours. So kind of observe yourself and look for that. And see how that plays into your sense that nobody wants to listen to you. And I would just add, when my feelings are hurt, because somebody who I really wanted to hear what I had to say didn't listen to me, I can hear myself saying to Joe, nobody listens to me. Nobody wants to listen to me. And then I kind of buy into my own false narrative. I hope that helps. And I'm sure it did. Okay, what awareness do I need so that I can be effective supporting and loving to a four and a nine who are learning and exploring their doing side, but struggling to act on their own behalf. P.S. I'm an eight. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, I, I hesitate a little bit anytime somebody wants to help somebody. And I, I know you do. I'm going to answer. I know you do. Hang on real quick. I know you do, and I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And that more people are, please keep coming if that's the reason why you are doing LTM and Enneagram work. (laughs) Because more people are doing that in tandem with their own internal work. work. I agree. So I agree with you. So my next sentence was going to be, be sure you're doing your work so that you don't come on too heavy. Because it's a long journey in relationship to doing from 8 to 4 or from 8 to 9. The best way to uh, support a 9 in bringing up doing is to find out one or two things that they really want or that they really want to accomplish or that they really want to do. And then really support them and hold their feet to the fire in those one or two things. 
And that will begin to reinforce the value of doing instead of just thinking and feeling or feeling and thinking. So that's a, that's a good thing for nines. Fours, uh, you, you kind of have to walk with a four, spend time with a four, pointing out the goodness and the joy and the beauty and the excitement of normal everyday activity. If a four is thinking about doing something and it's clean out the garage, plant flowers, do anything, do doing anything that's mundane, wash the dishes, cook, it just looks so flat and unexciting and uh, and uh. So what you have to do is, um, I'll use cooking just as a, an example, not that it would be cooking, but maybe it'll be a template for you. Take a cooking class together. So that something that seems everyday and mundane really gets to be, well, that was fun, but I never would have taken a cooking class because I don't want to cook because I think it takes too much time because I see how that works. I hope those are examples that help on I doubt if those are the specific responses that you're looking for. Fantastic. All right, we're going to try something out here. Okay. We've got a question about from a parent, and uh, I believe we can call up Joey Shuey of Enneagram Parents and uh, get her to get her to join us on this. Bear with me, everybody. Oh, it's ringing. Hello. Yes, is this Joey Shuey? <laughs> this is Joey Shuey. All right, Joey Shuey, first of all, you are live on the table. And Suzanne, your headphone on your right ear is pointing outwards. <laughs> just so people can see what I'm... There we go. Yep, there it is. Hey, you, I bet you can hear hey, it better baby. Now. Yeah. How you doing? I'm here being under the normal abuse. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It keeps you young. Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to read this question, Joey. We're doing uh, some Q&A on front, leftover from the Stances Workshop in Tennessee right. last month. Okay. And so I'm going to read this question. It's a two-parter. They're really challenging me today with the questions and their length. But they're such great questions. So bear with me, right. and then I'm going to let the two of y'all discuss your response. My oldest daughter is 12, and I think maybe an Enneagram 1. I'd love your advice on how to support her in two areas. The first, she internalizes her anger and frustration and says all the hurts just pile up on top of those in the past and doesn't know how to let those go and forgive. How can I help her process those feelings? And how about y'all talk about that one first and then we'll go to the second one. Caleb, you're okay. the expert. You go first. Well, I don't know that I'm the expert, but if we're talking about kids, it is definitely where I'm spending a lot of my time these days. Um, well, my first thought is the way Billy and I um, come at Enneagram and parenting with stances with kids is through stances. So if you believe she's a one, then um, what the, what you learned in Tennessee or maybe already knew is that she um, thinks last, uh, if ever. So she's doing a lot of uh, doing. Her filter it comes through doing, and she processes with doing. But she supports all of that with feeling. And the feelings she supports it with are her own. They're very private. 
they likely have to do with um, the, kind of that inner monologue from the critics. And so very simply, one of the first ways to get her kind of snapped out of feelings is a simple question. And that is, what are you thinking? What do you think about what happened to you? What makes you frustrated? Uh, because she's naturally dealing with anger. So just those two questions, what makes you frustrated with yourself? And what makes you frustrated with other people? And then you're going to have to have the patience to let her verbally process through all of that because uh, ones, twos, and sixes, since thinking is the least accessed center of intelligence, they talk through their thinking. And so that's definitely going to happen with the 12-year-old. So you really got to let her, um, give her the space and have the patience to let her process through um, her thoughts about what frustrates her and what um, with herself and with others. And I think that for sure will allow her to, in turn, um, bringing up thinking, automatically process and let go of some of those feelings. Before you respond to that, Suzanne, just put a, put a little pin in that answer because that's going to be a player in part two of this question. Okay. Okay. Um, the thing I would add to that is that I, I am beginning to ask the question of adults, but I think a 12-year-old could answer it. And that is, how much does your standard for behavior or for action cause resentment in you and in other people. One of the things that I think happens with adolescents is they resent other people in the absence of thinking about the fact that the other people probably resent them too over a certain something. So if, if a 12-year-old, one, is aware of things that aren't done right, is critical of things that aren't done right, is um, redoing things, um, or if a 12-year-old is resenting that other people don't try as hard as she does and don't work as hard as she does. That not only causes resentment in the 12-year-old, but also in the people who are resented, who didn't kind of m meet the standard somehow. And I, I think a big disconnect comes with that without us ever talking about expectations. So one of the things that ones have to learn, and Joey, you can help me with what age would be an appropriate time for them to begin to learn that, is that when you expect other people to do things like you do things, they're not going to at 12, and they're going to resent you as much as you resent them for having that expectation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's very well said. Uh, the only other piece I would add just going through all of that is um, ones are the only number um, for whom feeling supports doing. Yep. And so it's important to remember that from, you know, from an early age, even before 12, all the way through adulthood, uh, ones are emotionally attached to doing. So it, they are attached more to behavior um, than to people. And so, so much of what she's reacting to is likely behavior and not the person. But my guess is she's tying it to the person. Amen, sister. Daughter, I mean. <laughs> well, uh, 
that's a great lead in all that, all of that to the second part of this question. I just feel for this lady. Part two, she's very strict in her expectations of others or family at least. For instance, she has shared that interrupting her talking upsets her. It's an unfortunately a bad habit of mine, the mother. When we're talking and if and when I interrupt her, uh, her mind takes her to a place of me not loving her because I just did something that I know upsets her and therefore I must not love her. It's never done intentionally with those thoughts, but verbally assuring her doesn't seem to be enough. What else can I do? That's exactly what Joey's talking about. She's saying, you know, you attach to the behavior, not the person. Mm -hmm. And when you interrupt, you're not interrupting her speaking after having a thought. You're interrupting her thinking. So it's a, it, it, she has to reset and then she's going to be, have a lot of emotion around the reset. Because remember when she's talking through something, she's thinking while she's doing it. That's how she does it. Whereas, um, you know, six of the other numbers have a thought and then speak. She's speaking through her thinking. So interrupting um, kind of makes her have to start over in her mind. And I think one of the things that, that, she can look at and talk about with her daughter maybe is that one's overthink, overanalyze, overprocess, and overtalk. And so that's uh, a place where they could maybe work to meet in the middle so that the one, the mom doesn't interrupt so soon and maybe so frequently. And then the daughter maybe can learn to have some moderate thinking, responding, etc. And Billy and I believe that and what we teach is that um, children in the dependent stance, ones, twos, and sixes, all need affirmation. All children need affirmation, but you really need to focus on it with those three. And the way you can offer it to your one child is personal affirmation over performance-based. So it's so easy to tell her she's doing a good job, but she won't hear that. Um, and because you are even asking this question, I feel very strongly that you have, um, good ways to affirm her as a human being. Um, so just look for ways to do that. And honestly, patiently letting her (laughs) verbally process is going to be a huge step. I would only add to that, that if the affirmation is, uh, not face to face, um, and not a text, (laughs) If you leave a little note somewhere, if you, uh, I don't know, put something in her backpack that affirms her, it's a little uh, more difficult to dismiss than other ways that we tend to shortcut in order to give somebody an affirmation. Joey, do you have time for another question? Sure. All right. Well, I've got one here from an eight. Let's go with it. Is it important for an eight to experience failure like a three to move forward? I had a failure of power and success that moved me into therapy, and I've been a better leader ever since. So is that an eight growth edge? I think it's important. I don't know that I would even label it failure. Um, I think it's important for an eight to experience not having control over the situation is the way I would put it. Um, and the larger the lesson that, you know, the larger the impact of not having control on a situation, um, the greater the lesson. And I do believe it is very important um, because eights aren't out in the world doing in order to succeed. 
um, we're doing what needs to be done. We're, we're, you know, it's a, it's totally, it's a different motivation. So failure, um, what would look like failure probably to the outside world or especially to a three, um, an eight necessarily wouldn't necessarily label that. So I would just change the language and say, um, eights need to be, uh, the sooner eights can be put in situations, <laughs> um, and you can't manufacture it, I don't think, but where they're not in control of the scene, of the situation, um, growth really, yeah, the, the growth that comes from that is huge. Joey, I've been... Because it allows us to recognize our own vulnerability, that we actually, you know, <laughs> are human. Joey, I've been waiting to uh, ask you this for the last few days. I've been thinking about it, so we'll just do this now. Do you think that AIDS have more control than most people? So, like, I, I'm clear that control often is an illusion for me, and I like it, that illusion, but it's still illusion. But I wonder about AIDS and maybe other aggressive numbers too, but eights for sure. I wonder if most of what you think you can control, like a high percentage, 80%, you can. And I wonder if that's true because you eights see far ahead enough to plan for what's going to go wrong and have a solution for it before it happens which lengthens the amount of control that you would have. That's all supposed to be a question. So, Yes. Everything that you're saying, I, I, I believe that um, one of the reasons that three, sevens, and eights in the aggressive stance have the most natural self-confidence is because we do experience the most control over situations. And I think it's ultimately um, due in part to us being such fast processors, due in part to us not, um, tapping into our feeling center and um, due in part to being future oriented. And then the big underlying um, thing that happens for all of us that supports all of that is we, we can walk away. We can stand independent from it. Yeah. And Which you know, is opposite of a one or two or a six. Yes, it is. Well, thank you, thank you so much. Before we let you go, anything you want to plug or uh, I know Anagram Parents is the handle for social media. Yeah, Anagram Parents is the handle, and it's we're doing some good stuff. We're going to Abilene in two weeks. We've taught in Dallas and we've taught in Katy, Texas. And if you're interested, just DM us on Anagram Parents. All right, we'd yeah. love to head your way. We talk Anagram. Well, thank you, Joey. <laughs> thank you, guys. Love you. Talk to you later. Love you, darling. All right, bye. Love y'all. I just love all of our new technology that we get to do nowadays. Me too. All right, I'm going to read a couple questions that have been answered, but I want people, I found that people are like, oh, man, they didn't answer my question. And we did. So just go back. If you were like listening for your question, sixth question, can you please explain a little more about forgiveness being a challenge for sixes? I mean, crush that other part. Is this related to being burdened by past pain? <laughs> Asked and answered in a different way. And then feel like y'all, you and Joey really handled this one well. Is a one emotionally attached to what others do and don't do? So they see a failure to do something as a rejection of themselves. So, yes. Um, 
Yeah. And then we're going to do a quick question about a seven, and but you can answer it. I'll add on. It, okay. Just because it's a seven question, that doesn't mean I want to answer it. <laughs> Generally, I don't want to answer the two questions. Are you going to do that? So, no, I'm not the Enneagram <laughs> godmother. Oh, okay. So. okay. As a seven, it seems like I am doing all the time. Thinking sounds a little boring. Ha ha. Is the seventh thinking primarily imagining and planning they're doing? One of the things that I think happens in sevens is because they think fast and they um, have a half range of emotions, so they are not usually thinking about consequences. One of the things I try to say, and I, I, I haven't figured out how to say it yet that's effective enough, is that they think and do and think and do and do and think and do and think and think and do and do and think. And that gets its own rhythm and its own speed. And then once you get into that, there's just no stopping that until something unintended, unexpected, and that was not part of the vision happens. Sounds good to me. You don't want to add to that? For me, thinking is, thinking is doing. It's not doesn't matter what the thinking is uh-huh. or what it's about. Mm-hmm. Part of growing up, a, a real part of growing up for me has been realizing that you, I can't get lost in the thinking that I, I have to do. And then I get kind of similar to a nine. I can start doing the wrong things at, or the right things at the wrong time yep. where I have an idea and I think and I'm like, okay, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And then I start doing and I'm like, oh, you haven't handled this yet or you haven't handled this yet, or you need to handle this. And that can kind of, and then that's what causes all the balls to get in the air. And that's the gift of the Enneagram is then that one energy can come in a whole myriad of ways, uh, both healthy and unhealthy. But that ends up being what happens. If the thinking gets out of control, then everything else suffers. Yeah. Would Do you think that, Part of the way you get lost in that whole, uh, on that path, has to do with the fact that you reframe negatives into positives so quickly so that things that didn't go well in the past don't stick with you. I think what you're saying is true. It's not tied to this, though. Okay. Like this stands free of reframing. This yeah. is just, here's an idea. Oh, this, this for LTM. Mm-hmm. People with my which I think several of them are watching right now. Uh, you know, I'll share, I'll share my ideas about, oh, if LT is going to do this and yeah. we've got this idea. And then they are like, hey, when is that one thing going to be ready? When, when is that other thing going to be? When is this going to be out and available? When can we find this in the store? Yep. When are y'all going to do this? And I'm like, oh, man, I need to get less balls in the air, mm-hmm. think less. Uh, I don't know, come up with a dream journal or something, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> And actually do, because uh, my role at LTM, you know, my role, there's the Wedding Crashers and it's Owen Wilson. Oh, there's I love that movie I know. so much. I'm an idea man. That's how I feel. I'm like, I'm an idea man. <laughs> and however, I'm also the executor and have to be the executor of the ideas. So, um, yeah. It's just when doing kind of what they said. Or I disagree. For me, thinking is not boring. It's doing things I don't want to do that's boring mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and doing things that I thought up can be boring. Uh, I know I sound like a child, 
We have one other question. Actually, I just think you sound like seven, and I, I don't think that's childish. Uh, that's sevenness, and if it's labeled as, as childish, that cuts adults out of having to look at that and really listen, listen to that. And I, I think most sevens are idea people who are in positions professionally where they're responsible for their idea coming to fruition. And, that, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, the last question we're not going to answer today. I'm going to read it as a teaser for something that we've talked about doing. Here it is, seven idea. <laughs> Good Lord. We've talked about doing and haven't done, but now we're going to do it. And by putting it on the podcast, I think that's going to... Get it. Yeah, people hold us to the fire. Hold do I know fire. this thing before we... Tell the world we're going to do You and I have talked about it. Okay, great. Uh, I can tell you off the top of my head what episode 50, the 50th episode of the Enneagram Journey podcast is. It's orientation to time. I haven't listened to it in two years. I I don't know when it came out, but let's just say two years. And it is top two on listen to podcasts. This person asks, I'm pretty sure that I heard on a podcast that if someone is uncertain of their number, that they can look to relation to time. Did I hear that correctly? Can you explain relation to time a bit more for each stance? So our homework is that we are going to go re-listen to that episode and come back with kind of part two, expanding on orientation to time, maybe with uh, a few guest contributors who can talk about their Enneagram number or their stance and or their stance and what orientation to time means. Yeah. Again, I just didn't want someone who's watching or listening to this to be like, Oh man, they they didn't answer my question.